unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Hi, welcome to the first episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. It's a new podcast. Uh, I am your host, one of your hosts, unemployed graduate student Michael Farmer. Joining me today are assistant professor of English at Emanuel College, Nathan Gilmore, and graduate instructor at the University of Georgia, David Grubbs. Guys, you want to say something about yourselves? Sure, I'll go ahead and take it first. Uh, I am Nathan Gilmore, the elder statesman of this little crew, uh, good, fr- good friends with both David and Michael. I am a generalist in my soul. Uh, I've done graduate work in English literature and biblical studies. I've taught Greek philosophy, and I've taught medieval Arthur tales. Uh, I love thinking about and teaching all sorts of texts, and you know, I am interested in this podcast because the the pod the podcast world out there. I don't know if it has an an analog to blogosphere. Is there a podcastosphere? There should be if there isn't. Okay. Well, at any rate, the uh, the podcast world has some very good podcasts that are intellectual Christian podcasts, and I figured that we could add one more voice to that chorus. So, in our little project here, the Christian Humanist, we're going to try to be, as the intro said unabashedly intellectual, unapologetically confessional, and hopefully have some fun doing it. So It was nice uh, of the Internet Monk to agree to record that intro for us, Nathan. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I I and the Internet Monk share similar geographic roots there in the coal mine country of southern Indiana, northern Kentucky. So, yes, I do sound a bit like Michael Spencer. Oh, there I go with my Michael Spencer vowel sounds. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but I assure you, I am a different person. All right, Dave, you want to tell us about you? Um, sure. David Grubbs. Um, I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Georgia. Uh, they also put me to work teaching their freshmen, and next spring, their sophomores. Hooray. Exciting. Um, what class are you teaching next spring, uh, David? The uh, 2310 survey, the early British lit, uh, from Beowulf to... <laughs> Milton or later, depending on how far I get. Right, but, depending on if you want to do dirty comedies. Yeah, or Swift. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm probably going to go as far as Milton because my interest wanes sharply thereafter. So you're not um, going to go Swift and dirty? <laughs> Swift and dirty. Um, let's see. I My interests, I am by trade. An Anglo-Saxonist. I study Old English lit, Beowulf, and the uh, other other bits of poetry and homily and prose that sprang up out of the culture that produced Beowulf. Uh, I range a bit further on into the Middle Ages and then beyond that into the Renaissance uh, after gunpowder becomes important in, gun, in uh, warfare. Um, I lose interest. Uh, however... There are a few things thereafter that I'm interested in. Uh, pulp fiction in the early uh, in the early 20th century is interesting to me, as well as a uh, gothic novel, also interesting. Um, that's uh, 
that, that's that's pretty much why also I'm interested in this podcast. I love books. Uh, I love the production uh, the the productions of human imagination, and think they're worth investigating. Great, and uh, I'm Michael Farmer. I'm a uh, third year graduate student at the University of Georgia, but I don't live in Georgia anymore. I'm down here in Tallahassee, Florida, where my wife attends FSU, so I'm studying for my comprehensive exams and not doing much of anything else. Um, I'm an Americanist. I'm the only person here who does uh, the 20th century in a major way, I suppose. I do uh, I do a lot of stuff with existentialism. I do a lot of stuff with theology and literature and... Uh, like Nathan, I've attempted to make myself into a generalist, although far less successfully than him. <laughs> I've so, had a few years on you. That's true. Um, I have taught Plato, and I taught Euripides, and, and things like that in my comps classes, but uh, my breadth of knowledge is not nearly as wide as Nathan's. So, um, one other thing we all have in common, besides the fact that we do this podcast and that we uh, all attend attended University of Georgia, is that we all went to religious institutions for our undergraduate work which I think is kind of how we became friends in the first place. Is that right, guys? I'd, I'd say that. Yeah, that was certainly a factor. So do you want to talk about where you went and your experiences there and how that shaped your uh, academic uh, career? Sure. I'll, I'll go ahead and go first on this one as well, and then I'll kick it over to David. I went to Milligan College in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, it bills itself as a Christian liberal arts school, and the other schools in our little non-denominational denomination, uh, sometimes don't understand what liberal arts mean, and they label it the liberal school, uh, which <laughs> misses the point entirely, uh, even if it is true sometimes. I was an English major to start out, but then I took a course in philosophical ethics in which four college sophomores and a college philosophy and theology professor who still remains my mentor uh, read through Aristotle's ethics together. And I realized during that semester that this life of examining the traditions that have been handed down to us, interacting with us, deciding uh, where the ancients speak to us fruitfully and where we need to resist the ancients, I realized that this was something I could and I probably should devote my life to. And that's when I decided to get into philosophy. Um, unfortunately, all the philosophy graduate programs I applied to rejected me summarily. Uh, so I ended up going to seminary, getting a master's in Old Testament, and you know it was during that year that I started teaching some freshman comp to pay the bills, realized that I really enjoyed teaching writing, teaching literature, and that's how I ended up you know, coming into the University of Georgia. I actually, looking back now, I realized that I probably should have been squashed like a bug because of the culture of hardcore secularism in the state university. But I was something of, you know, I guess if you mix my utter arrogance and my utter ignorance, uh, I managed <laughs> to dodge the bug-squishing apparatus. And all the way through my graduate career I, career, I basically ended up being the novelty guy in the class, the guy who was conversant with Luther and Calvin and Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and Hebrew and Greek and all those sorts of things. Uh, everyone else had a lot more French theory than I did. Uh, but when it came to what exactly is Spencer alluding to here, I ended up being very helpful. Now, of course, once I started into doctoral work, I ran into Mr. Grubbs, to whom I'm about to kick it, realized that we were kindred souls in a lot of ways. So, Grubbs, why don't you tell us about where you come from? 
Yeah, we Nathan and I met as the I guess co-Bible guys in uh, in that Spencer <laughs> class. That was ah, uh, those were golden days. Um, I got my bachelor's. Uh, well, actually, before that, I probably better say um, I was raised uh, very uh, very fundamentalist. Um, and uh, was homeschooled. So my education very early on uh, was, well, it was bent around whatever uh, curriculum my parents were using, but it was even more bent by the the shape of my own interests. Um, we had math textbooks, we had science textbooks, but as far as literature and history went, um, my mother let me uh, let me wander into whatever fields I wanted to. Um, and that, uh, that follow your bliss approach to education continued on into my college career. I went to Southeastern Bible College in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, it's a preacher boy school. And initially I was going there uh, intending to go to, uh, to seminary afterwards. But in my junior year, they added a, uh, an English major, which they'd never had before. And... I hesitated for about five minutes and rushed upstairs and switched majors. <laughs> so since then, I've been pursuing English. Um, from there, I went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, had some some really great professors there, some really uh, understanding instructors who, uh, while not uh, Christians themselves, were gentler with the little preacher school boy than, uh, than I would have had any right to expect in, in, uh, such a secular forum. And so when I came to UGA, uh, I don't think it was so, so much, uh, a mixture of arrogance and ignorance that got me through as, uh, having been taught at UAB, um, how much I can say and from what, from what angle I can say it, I suppose, in, in a classroom so as to be moving the discussion forward and not merely making myself a target. Um, since I've been at UGA, um, uh, I've been in, involved with uh, a church here, and uh, so I've been... Uh, I, I suppose the, the the sympathetic listener when I find out that one of my students is also religious, and I let them write papers with you know from a religious angle, and and so that's kind of my uh, voice crying in the wilderness contribution, I suppose. They do love that, don't they? Especially they do. since they so do. many of them were told in high school that their college professors would be godless and uh anti anti-religion they, they they like it when they they come into the classroom and find out well and, and frankly some of our colleagues are so <laughs> fewer this is a topic for a, a future episode but fewer than i expected not that they're nice not that they're not nice people but oh i lo i love them dearly but i mean you know there are people who say you cannot use the bible as a source in your papers right and, and right. you know when they come to my class and you know for instance when i was teaching my Hebrew Bible as literature class. I mean, they, well, first of all, they thought it was a trap, but uh, <laughs> once they got beyond that, they really enjoyed it. It's a trap. <laughs> yeah. All right. Little so, return of the Jedi. All right, Farmer, how about you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I went to uh, Toccoa Falls College, which is in a part of Georgia so northeast it may as well be South Carolina. 
Um, hmm. It's a Christian Missionary Alliance school. I was an English major there basically from the third week. I think I was going to major in um, secondary ed English, and then I decided that um, that, that wasn't the path for me. Um, and and I, I knew I wanted to go to grad school from, from the point um, at TFC where I took uh, their Western Thought and Culture class, which is just a, a two-week course. Uh, you don't read any primary source text. Uh, you read Francis Schaeffer's How, uh, How Shall We Then Live? But uh, in, the, in this two weeks, I realized that it was through this kind of comprehensive study of the, of the humanities that you could uh, know everything. And uh, since that's been my goal since I was a little kid, I suppose, um, that's the route I took. Um, and that kind of brings us into the topic of this first podcast, which is um, defining Christian humanism. It's the name of the podcast, but humanism can be kind of a slippery word, and so we should probably define what we mean by it before we talk about the uh, many other things we're going to talk about. So um, I thought we'd start by by giving some common modern-day definitions of humanism and explaining why that isn't what we mean. And the first and, and maybe the most obvious is the evangelical boogeyman, secular humanism. Uh, one of you guys want to talk about secular humanism? Sure, I'll, I'll take the first stab at that, and then I'll see if you guys want to make some more comments. I, first of all, secular humanism is a reality. It's something that certain groups of people profess themselves to be. The American Humanist Association uh, is decidedly a secularist organization. Uh, you know, they're 15-point... I believe they call it a manifesto, but if you guys want to check me they, on that, they do. You can. Actually, I have a quote from it. If you'd like me to read it, oh, hit me with a quote. Hit me with a quote. This is from the Humanist Manifesto Two from 1973. Uh, Isaac Asimov signed it. B.F. Skinner, Francis Crick, a lot of other names. Um, people know. Um, here's what they say um, in part. We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of survival and fulfillment of the human race. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God, nature, not deity. All so, right, so that is precisely the sort of humanism that the boogeyman is based on. Uh, and, you know, I'd, since we call ourselves the Christian humanists, uh, you would think that it would be evident that we're not that. However, uh, there is a website out there when I was researching for the show, I think ChristianHumanism.net, which is not us, uh, which does profess to be ritually Christian but intellectually secular humanist. So I think we should, you know, we shouldn't immediately dismiss it just because some people are a little bit too scared of it. Uh, no, it, it, it definitely is, exists. It does really exist. It's not us. Um, you want to add anything to that, guys? I, I think that it, that was important to make the distinction between uh, people who happen to be simultaneously Christians and uh, humanists of that stripe. Um, I think, too, though, Christians are uh, uh, feel a bit backed in the corner, uh, at least those who are intellectually engaged. There's been kind of a, a, a renaissance of the, of that 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 stripe of humanists, the the Richard Dawkins and the Christopher Hitchens, sure. you know, producing you know just incredibly aggressive polemics against uh, what what basically we build our view of the world around, and it, they seem to half consider us uh, mentally ill, and then and be very surprised we're not actually you know engaging in inquisitions right now. And um, Sam Harris actually suggests wiping out religious belief, I mean, militarily. 
Right, right, right. I mean, you know, they, they, you know, they are pretty daggum extreme. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess my point is that it, it is it is very important uh, that we understand that some Christians would be suspicious of our use of the word humanist, and wonder why we would even want to share a share a title with uh, with people of that stripe, but. Uh, at the same time, and I believe we're going to get into this when we start defining Christian humanism, we're taking the word back, not appropriating it for ourselves. That's right, because humanist, um, for most of Western intellectual history, meant someone who studied the humanities, um, and especially the humanities of either the classical era or the Renaissance era, right? And this, this field was dominated by Christians in the West until relatively recently. So you get someone like Aquinas saying that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, which I think we could probably take as a mission statement. Is that right? Oh, sure, sure. And, and you know, huma, huma, blah, 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 humanism itself uh, has its roots in words that have to do with discipline, that have to do with education. It has to do with a certain belief about human beings that there are good things that human beings can aspire to but that those good things require a certain life of discipline, hard work, diligence, things like that. So that's what we mean then when we, uh, when we call ourselves Christian humanists. And um, I, thought, I thought now we would go through kind of our own pet areas and talk about the role of Christian humanism in those areas. And in David's case, in the medieval era, this would be, I, I believe, when it was just first being developed. Is that right, David? Well, the, from the the earliest era of uh, the Christian community, and even before that, the, the the Jewish community before them had to deal with to what degree are we going to uh, assimilate with the Hellene culture? Um, we have to live it, with this uh, in this politically Roman world, this culturally largely Greek world, and to what degree do we embrace the the thought and the art of that world? Um, that was a, a live argument amongst the earliest Christians. And on one hand, you had people like uh, Justin Martyr, who saw uh, uh, the uh, Plato and Socrates as a, uh, a proto-evangelion, uh, a a a proto gospel that while not salvific in itself laid laid a, an intellectual groundwork which uh which Christ's incarnation in some way fulfilled and ex- and extended beyond the reach of human reason allowing us uh to move from this intellectual knowledge to transcendent knowledge um he based this idea on uh the what, what he called the logos he pulled from uh, Greek philosophy in this the the notion uh, they use that word logos to talk about the underlying rationality of the universe he used it to mean Christ um, to say that that the same underlying rationality that the philosopher cited was in fact whom the the person that we worship the wisdom of God um, he might have borrowed that from the Gospel of John maybe yeah, he he did crib, crib shamelessly from John. At least he borrowed <laughs> he borrowed John's uh, uh, John's diction, and then filled in uh, the uh, the context of John's diction. Um, on the other hand, we had there were church fathers like Tertullian, who wanted nothing to do with the Greek culture. Um, 
as he famously said, what is Athens to do with Jerusalem? What is Christ to do with the academy? Um, he he was very separatist. Um, however, by the time you get to uh, my period, the the old English period, they were translating, uh, you know, they were translating Be uh, Bo uh, Boethius into Old English. They were, um, you know, King Alfred himself was was retelling the story of of Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, they were reading classical authors as well as church fathers, and uh, that. Well, of course, they were still arguing about how, to what degree do we integrate the. Uh, the vernacular literature of our own previously pagan culture. Um, the, they were still arguing about that, but they'd come to terms with the classical, uh, the classical culture. So, so by the time we get to the Middle Ages, there there was a uh, a peace that had been made between the thinkers of the church and the thinkers of the classical world, and um, well. You get, you get to people like Aquinas who decide that they're going to find find a, a, a beautiful harmony between revealed re religion and uh, the two main representatives of, of the classical past, Plato and Aristotle. Right. But in that med in that medieval culture that you refer to, David, I mean, there is a definitely a culture of commentary and expansion. Uh, to where the best way to read Plato or Aristotle is to translate them into a Christian milieu. And I think yes. that's really, you know, one of the significant breaks between someone like Thomas Aquinas and, on one hand and then someone like Desiderius Erasmus on the other hand. Right. Why don't, you t why don't you talk about Erasmus for a minute, Nathan? He's the picture on our podcast, so I guess he's kind of our patron saint. Yes, um, he is our little graphic dude. Him. Uh, he was born in the 15th century, uh, did most of his most important work in the 16th century. Uh, Erasmus was arguably the greatest scholar of the Greek and Latin languages in the 16th century. Uh, he's someone who produced a scholarly text of the New Testament, the Textus Receptus, that formed the basis for what we now know as the King James Bible. Uh, he was a prolific writer, someone who wrote about topics ranging as far as biblical studies on one hand to etiquette on the other hand and rhetoric somewhere in the middle. Uh, he was someone who genuinely loved the ancients but had a distinct sense uh, that in the ancients you're, you're looking at something that isn't simply crypto-Christian, to use an anachronistic term, <laughs> but that was genuinely different from what's going on in the Christian era and what Erasmus was always careful to warn about. And he wrote, you know, a famous treatise on the study of Aristotle and a famous treatise on the study of Cicero to this effect. He said, when we look at these people, we need to realize that what we have as Christians living in the Christian era is actually something higher and greater than they could even grasp uh, so that we shouldn't slavishly imitate the style of Cicero but we should look carefully at the particulars of our own moment, use the tools that Cicero gives us, but use them as if we are serving Christ the king rather than Caesar the king. Although now that I think about it, Cicero wouldn't call Caesar a king. So we're, <laughs> we're, 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 we're serving the Republic of God, not the Republic of Rome. Boy, I should have thought of that before I said it. But Erasmus famously 
uh, late in his career, came into a clash with none other than Martin Luther uh, over certain questions of biblical interpretation and other such things. And the real point of contention between them in their famous uh, diatribe on free will and on the bondage of the will is precisely which one of the two men is subservient to ancient pagan traditions of philosophy and which one is articulating a true Christian philosophy. And of course, each man said the other was subservient to the ancient world and it got very ugly. And Martin Luther called him some awful names, including girly man. That's my translation. What's the exact German term for that? Das girly month. (laughs) <laughs> that, yeah, the, the, the diatribe happened in Latin, so uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. If you want to go into there? You know, we can we can go there. So he he, he did he does keep using feminine pronouns to refer to Erasmus throughout the thing. Nathan, you're kind of our Renaissance expert. Whose view of um, the classics prevailed during the Renaissance period? Was it Erasmus? Was it Aquinas? Was it Luther? Well, it was it was always a debate because in Spain, for instance, in the 17th century, you have uh, the work of Francisco Suarez, who is decidedly a direct descendant and heir of the project of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, on the other hand, you know you have the poet John Milton in England, uh, who definitely took on a very classicist, very Renaissance humanist view of things. And then on another hand, still assuming we have three hands, you have folks like Francis Bacon, <laughs> who lend you a hand. says that Aristotle is full of hot air. We should discard him and start a new kind of science, a new kind of thinking. So, I mean, the Renaissance is always an era, like the medieval era, David, I I think I'm safe in saying that, that the medieval era is a lot more volatile than people give it credit. Uh, But, I mean, in the Renaissance, the role of the ancients is always up for grabs, and the role of pagan antiquity in the life of the Christian church uh, is something that people take strong stands on, but there never is really a single consensus. Now, one of the figures who really engages with these new kinds of Christianity and these new ways of dealing with classical texts is, of course, John Calvin. And he is an especially interesting figure because he spends parts of his career as a re- Renaissance humanist and as one of the leading intellectual lights of the Reformation. Michael, do you want to talk for a few minutes about Calvin's relationship with what we're calling Christian humanism? I don't know if I can muster a few minutes, but I'll talk for uh, for some time anyway. Um, when I read the Institutes, and I read about half of it earlier this year with the rest of my um, Presbyterian church, because it's Calvin's 500th birthday, um, when, when I read the Institutes, I was surprised by how many appeals he makes to Greek philosophers, in particular Seneca. He was a student of Seneca before he was... Uh, the John Calvin we all know and love, um, because the uh, kind of stereotype about Calvinists is that they don't like anything outside of the Bible and or, or and or Calvin. But uh, he is quoting um, Greek scholars left and right, and um, for that matter, he quotes Augustine almost as much as he uh, quotes Saint Paul. Right. And, and just quote- to clarify, real quick, Michael, uh, just so our listeners don't email us with angry email. Seneca was in fact a Roman Stoic philosopher. Excuse me, did I call him Greek? You did. I bow before thy, uh, thou superior knowledge. Thy superior knowledge. <laughs> Fine, but go ahead. So, um, one interesting thing that Calvin introduces, and again, he probably didn't introduce this, but this is, this is where I learned it from, um, is the concept of general revelation versus special revelation, which um, 
becomes a major thing in the Institutes. He says early on that um, we can't know God without knowing ourselves, and we can't know ourselves without knowing God. So general revelation can only get you so far, and it'll get you into this kind of feedback loop of um, non-knowledge that requires input from the outside in the form of special revelation. Um, So if Calvin's right, general revelation, which would be the stuff um, Plato could know, it's at best um, incomplete and it, it can tell us that the Earth orbits the Sun, but it can't tell us what that means in the larger scheme of things. Um, so the reason behind things has to be supplied by specific or special revelation. With that in mind, do you guys think that Christian humanism is a sort of spiritual or intellectual arrogance? Are we saying, you may have come up with the theory of relativity, Mr. Einstein, but you can't interpret it properly? David, won't you take on that one first? Sure. Um, I I would say that it's not it's not arrogance to truly believe the uh, worldview that you hold. Um, I, on one hand, I, I would say that as uh, as Christians, we believe that we have a connection with uh, not only the God who knows all about the universe, but the God who made the universe, and because of that personal revelation of that personal creator, uh, we have access to a way of knowing ourselves and the universe that uh, someone whose horizon ends <laughs> with uh, with conscious thought and uh, the five senses uh, cannot have. So yeah, um, we can go further than Einstein, not because we're smarter than Einstein, um, he he was a, an amazingly amazingly brilliant man. I will never be anywhere close to that, but I have the advantage that he didn't have, which is um, the one who made it, uh, telling me things about uh, the universe, about myself, and about more importantly, about him. So. Uh, it's it's not arrogance to 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 simply acknowledge that your your worldview uh, gives you gives you information outside of uh, what the the purely secular does not uh, recognize. And Nathan, right. you kind of I, make- I, I would add to that that you know I think this is one of those places where. Calvin's terminology of, you know, general revelation, special revelation might not be as helpful, and you guys are free to disagree with me. I realize that I'm less a Calvinist than either of you happens to be, (laughs) but I think it turns out to be less helpful than, for instance, Thomas Aquinas's division between reason on one hand and revelation on the other. Uh, For Aquinas, well, let me back up. For Calvin, everything is revelation. God is perpetually revealing everything to us. All of our experience is a revealed moment. For Aquinas, he wanted to make a bit stricter a separation and say, revelation refers specifically to those moments where human perception becomes supernatural. In other words, the limits of our nature end up not being our limits because of supernatural grace that God gives us to see things. So, for instance, Elijah sees chariots of fire in the hills. Or Peter and James and John see Elijah and Moses with Jesus at the transfiguration. He would say those are the only moments that we should properly call moments of revelation. Now, the reason I say that is because I think that it sheds some light on the Einstein question. 
uh, when we are dealing with those things that we apprehend through our five senses, uh, we can, as Christian humanists, and I can as a Thomist, say that people like Albert Einstein, uh, Galileo, Kepler, all these people uh, have developed their powers of reason, those gifts of God, in ways that I certainly haven't, and in ways that enrich me because I, because they were courteous enough to write these things down and hand them along so that I could learn them. So I would say that, you know, uh, when it comes to theories of general relativity, special relativity, because those things are, for Thomas and for me, in the realm of reason rather than revelation, I can certainly tip my hat and say, you know, Albert Einstein certainly does do things in my service, and I stand in a relationship of gratitude to him uh, without having to say that Einstein, therefore, can talk about those things that were revealed in supernatural moments to prophets and apostles. In other words, you know, I, I would separate those two realms of knowledge. All right. Well, I've been charged with the task of talking about humanism in the modern academy, so I'll uh, talk about that briefly. Um, humanism as a discipline survived into the 20th century, and you see it, I think, a little bit in new criticism, although new criticism is to some extent a move away from humanism. But you, you yeah, I was wondering about that. I mean, what 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 is the connection that you see between new humanism and, or not new humanism, new uh, criticism and Christian humanism? Less in the actual um, practice of new criticism, and more in the types of people who practiced it. So you get um, the, the the people who are kind of associated with new new criticism but stand on the outskirts of it people like uh, T.S. Eliot people like C.S. Lewis I would I don't think either one of us would have uh, uh, okay okay they're, they're definitely humanists um, the southern agrarians um, in America I think are are definitely humanists with the exception of John Crow Ransom who's the one most associated with new criticism so it, it's kind of a slide away but it it keeps a toe in the humanist waters that makes some sense I was going to say where you see it more strongly in the mid-20th century is in the so-called heroic criticism of people like Lionel Trilling, who these are the people who kind of invented the canon to begin with, the literary canon to begin with, and um, they're, um, they're attempting to make grandiose statements about what it means to be human based on reading these texts. All right, now real quickly, Michael, uh, could you say a little bit of what, what you mean by the canon? Sure. The canon, oftentimes when you hear that in Christian circles, it means the 66 or... I, I can't remember how many um, books you you have if you uh, if you keep the Apocrypha in. But the, books, but the books of the Bible. But the canon is just um, a list of approved books. So the things you would read in college would make up a loose canon. And um, there's been various attempts to create nice an... Pun. What's that? I said nice pun, loose canon. There we go. Um, there's been there's been various there's been various attempts to create an official one um, for different schools or for different disciplines. You see that in uh, Harold Bloom's book. I think it's just called um, Great Books, isn't it? I don't it's know. actually called the Western Canon. I've got there it on go. my shelf here. Every three or four every three or four years, Bloom puts out another book that's just a list of other books he thinks you should read. Um, <laughs> um, so you you see that, and what happens is. Um, as the century progresses, as we get into the 60s um, in particular, 
the canon starts to be seen as inherently exclusionary. So most of the people we can agree on, on, on the traditional humanist canon are white men. In fact, if you, if you look at some schools, the only um, African author they read in humanism courses is St. Augustine, who, uh, who's from Carthage, but I'm not sure if you could really call him African in, in the sense that people, people are looking for an African author. So um, it, it, becomes, it becomes seen as uh, exclusionary and racist and sexist, and so they want to, uh, they want to dismantle the canon. And, and so that's, that's the point in the Western Academy where humanism loses its kind of grip on, on the culture. And what we what we get instead is either a reliance on uh, critical theory, on stru- structuralism or post-structuralism, or uh, post-colonialism or any other uh, any other post you want to look at, or you get <laughs> kind of a slide into studies mentalities, gender studies, uh, race studies. Um, there's probably uh, fifty other ones. Um, I don't think either one of those things are bad, but what happens is the studies mentality fosters such specialization that you, you don't tend to look outside your own area, and so there's no such thing as a canon anymore. All you have is a bunch of little canons, and that doesn't really work with um, with humanism. Um, so with a few exceptions universities, especially big universities, don't have humanities programs anymore. And the the two big exceptions I can think of are St. John's College in Annapolis, which is nothing but a great books program. Um, and Columbia University has a, what, what they call Lit Hume. I think, I think it stands for Literature and Humanities. And that's a two-year program um, everyone has to take where you read basically all the canonical books. And if you're interested in that um, program, David Denby has a book called Great Books where he uh, goes back and takes those classes as an adult and sees what he can kind of learn about the nature of humanity from them. But what what I think is interesting is the place where it looks like humanism is going to survive is the Christian college um, because there's there's quite a few Christian colleges, including your alma mater, Nathan, right? Yes, Milligan College's Humanities Program. Uh, Quite a few Christian colleges have these humanities programs, and the two um, the two I know best are Biola's Tory Honors Institute, which is an honors institute. Not everyone has to take them, but they're very small classes, uh, basically tutor and two D relationships where you read um, read the canon. And Bethel's CWC Christi- uh, Christianity and Western Culture. Um, and Western Humanities. Those are two different programs at Bethel that are required for all students. And we have to mention the CWC because they're big fans of me and Nathan, and so we're forming our little uh, mutual admiration society here. Right. Well, Michael Means is big fans of Michael, who occasionally mention me. They're playing your music this week, Nathan. So, um, yeah, that's as I see it, that's the state of humanism in the uh, modern academy. It's not gone, but it certainly doesn't have... Um, doesn't have primacy. Right. And, and in fact, and I think I part a- of that, I think we have to say, is that the culture of the big research university has become such that nobody advances in a career by sustaining a tradition of humanistic pursuit. People advance their careers by innovation, by publication, um, by breaking away from what has gone before rather than passing what has gone before on to another generation. So, I mean, the the basic mindset of 
a small Christian college is, I think, by nature, more given to sustaining a tradition than would be a large research university, be that a private university or a state university. Which I, uh, that's a point I make on my, uh, on, there's a post on my blog called What I Like About Christian Colleges, and I'll give the address out for that later, and anyone who's interested can go read it. But I, I definitely agree with you that the, the, it's, the Christian college is, is what's going to preserve humanism in the good, um, the good sense of the word. I did want to share my story about uh, the depths to which the academy has sunk in this regard. I took a class on uh, modern poetry at UGA, and I turned in a paper on T.S. Eliot and Wallace Stevens, and I got it back with a uh, rather low grade on it, and the, the remark that I'm too much of a humanist. Um, so there's no place in in an English department anymore for someone who's a humanist, which I wear as a badge of glory. I mean, it's a... Uh, telling remark not about my pursuits but about where the interest of the academy uh, is if I may make a uh, a somewhat speculative stab at, at, at the reason for that and why uh, humanism is, will stick around in the Christian colleges but not elsewhere is uh, you mentioned the, the, the trend towards theory and the trend towards the, uh, the notion of very focused studies um, the idea that a body of knowledge uh, me only means what it means within a, a governing context. Um, I think humanism on its own, a secular humanism, ultimately becomes, uh, as you mentioned earlier talking about Calvin, ultimately becomes a feedback loop because we, we hit the, the limits of, of our humanity and we have no we aren't able to get beyond our humanity and therefore don't understand the context in which being human has meaning so as Christians we can provide a context for humanity for what what it means to be human and to do the things that humans do that a a merely only humanist perspective cannot and so um, Perhaps the humanism has retreated to narrower, narrower communities, narrower contexts within which smaller demographics of humans may be defined because there is no greater context in which the human can be defined. Let me push back on that a little bit, David. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, what would you say then about the late Victorian tendency to replace religion with literature. I mean, I'm thinking of folks like Matthew Arnold, uh, who had largely abandoned, you know, the traditional confessions of Christianity, but still held that some sort of literary religion would sustain Western civilization. Is that a project in your mind that is doomed to failure from the outset? I would say yes. Um, the And why? <laughs> Because – and I think I'm cribbing from C.S. Lewis here uh, – because that movement uh, was based on uh, the borrowed capital of Christianity. It was based on uh, ethical, on moral, on social assumptions that ultimately arose out of a, uh, a culture that came, that was informed by Christianity. And once uh, – the if, if you divorce – if you divorce those those ethics, those morals, those values from from the root, it can last for a few generations out of out of nostalgia or habit. But once new generations come along and begin asking, 
why do we do things this way? Why do we read these dead white men and not these other dead white men or just dead white men and not dead not white men or and so forth? That tradition is not going to be able to provide those answers other than to say, well, this is our tradition. And I, I should note that um, it's Arnold who leads to most clearly to the heroic critics to uh, Lionel Trilling. And I cannot remember the other guy's name now. And um, it's against Lionel Trilling and, and people of his generation that the theorists are revolting in, uh, in large part. There's a story about um, during the riots at Columbia. And I think it was that 1968 during the riots. More than at, likely. Yeah, everything was. <laughs> Um, during the riots at Columbia, somebody broke into Trilling's office and spray painted um, vulgar word, you, you bourgeoisie pig. And the article I read said someone obviously who didn't take French class or who failed it. But um, so <laughs> to, to a large extent, theory is revolting against the excesses of Matthew Arnold. And if you if you if you look at the books against the canon, Matthew Arnold was a favorite whipping boy. Oh, sure, sure. So um, I have here three theological objections that might be used against Christian humanism. I've heard um, at least two of them used. I, I don't know about the third one, but I've heard at least two of them used <laughs> by uh, popular audiences. So let's uh, let's try to address. But the third these. one might crop up at some time, so we better address it. <laughs> yes. Well, plus the third one is by Karl Barth, who uh, who I, I have to take seriously anyway. Um, so the first is is what I'm calling the Pauline objection to Christian humanism. It comes from Colossians two eight. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So this passage, I used to hear it in um, high school all the time at my Baptist church. Um, this passage has been used against Christian humanism since before the term Christian humanism existed. Um, is it a valid argument? Is it a reason not to uh, pursue humanism as a Christian pursuit? I'll go ahead and take the first swing at that one. I mean, I would say that, first of all, it's been a while since I've actually looked at the Greek of this text, but I I have looked at this text in the original. And one of the key phrases there was that, Michael, was the phrase you used, elemental? Elementary principles of the world. I think elementary the principles, standard. all right. Um, one of the approaches I've seen taken to this passage is that that phrase, elementary principles, seems to be some sort of code word uh, probably either from uh, atomism or stoicism, one of the two, but one of the philosophies prevalent during the first century in the Mediterranean Roman world uh, that held that if there are, if there is something that we call deity, then it is probably contained in the universe itself, that it is a principle that informs creation rather than being a, a free and transcendent creator of creation. Uh, so, I mean, you know, one, one approach I've seen in the literature surrounding Colossians says that what he's saying there is don't be a stoic, be a Christian instead. The other thing I would say is that, you know, because the canon of Paul, Paul's letters themselves, uh, seems so conversant in Greco-Roman philosophical vocabularies. I mean, you think about the way that he describes the constitution of the Corinthian community, there are so many echoes of Plato's Republic there that it's hard to believe that he had never read Plato. He actually uh, makes the Republic much less offensive and scary while maintaining the same basic idea. Well, but it's a it's Republic maintained not by a tradition of reasoning leaders, but it's a it's the Republic if the Holy Spirit's governing it. That's right. 
which is very different, I think. But that that aside, uh, the final retort to this that I would give uh, is that historically, uh, we really ought to pay attention to what we mean by the word philosophy. Uh, in the first century, uh, when when we are talking about the word philosophy, generally we're talking about a pursuit of life. People talked about philosophy almost exclusively as, um, I don't want to say lifestyle because that trivializes it, but as a way rather than as a body of knowledge. So I would tend to think that Paul here uh, is talking about a certain way of life that he's steering people away from because it is itself steering people away from the ways of the church. Uh, David, I mean, have you encountered any scholarship on this verse or have you done any readings of it that would help us out here? Uh, da, da, da. I'm tapping back into uh, a, a, a course on first Corinthians uh, that I took way back in Bible college um, I believe there was there was some attempt to anchor the the elementary principles with uh, with uh, notions of of uh, gnostic hierarchies Ooh. of beings um, and 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 that the that that are that that passage is talking about our knowledge coming not through through some kind of semi divine uh, succession of media of, of mediators but uh but from god himself and in the person of uh god the son so that uh so that our 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 knowledge is not uh is not is not immediate is not gnostic is not dependent on all of these these the endless shells of spiritual intercessors which is basically what gnosticism was but uh, but upon Christ. Um, again, that's a taking a stab at it from distant memory. <laughs> All right. Um, the second objection here, I'm calling the Augustinian uh, objection. Um, in the Confessions, Augustine is disgusted with his past life, um, as everyone knows. And one thing he's disgusted about is that he used to go to plays and he used to read the Aeneid and. He suffered. He he felt bad. He he felt um, pathos. But his problem is the suffering he felt for these characters was illusory, and it didn't have any connection to reality. So the question is, why should we pour our energies into Shakespeare or Beowulf or Mark Twain when we can discover truth in the Bible or in theology or in life itself? David, you want to take the first cut at this one? Oh yes. Um the the difficulty that we have here is not just of the relationship between christians and art but between christians and and fictions um uh, representations of of persons and events that that are not true um i think it's important here though that we make the uh the distinction that tolkien made in his essay on fairy stories between what he termed primary belief and secondary belief Primary belief is uh, the belief in in the factual, in what is what is actually, literally, empirically real. Um, this conversation, I have primary belief that that there is actually a micro farmer somewhere, and there is actually an Ethan Gilmore. They're not in front of me, but I believe in you guys primarily. You're you're we welcome. We can see the little green bar moving on Skype, so. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. That's just a wiggle of fluctuating pixels. It's not, it's not ocular proof. Uh, secondary belief uh, is, is the, what he described as a, uh, an investment within a, a fictional story that allows us to enter into the story, to, to empathize, uh, to experience vicariously with characters – but we never, we never really believe. So on one hand, um, I think we need. I think it, it's important to make a distinction between to what degree do people invest in stories, to what degree do people believe stories. Um, the second point uh, is that, and and Tolkien approaches this uh, very aggressively, is that far far from arguing that it's okay for us to to tell stories that aren't true Tolkien locates uh, an important remnant of the image of God in humans within their abilities to create stories with words um, and this is this is from Tolkien uh, he says that fantasy that is uh, f fiction that is that is overtly completely fictional uh, remains a human right we make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made and not only made but made in the image and likeness of a maker so that our ability to tell stories and to enjoy stories is a reflection of the fact that we were made by a god who tells stories and uh and uh, to some degree, and this is uh, maybe later on when we talk about providence and things of that notion, to some degree, the, the world and its history and us within it are, are the story that he is telling. And he is not only the teller of that story, but a character within it. And, and our ability to love stories and to appreciate the logic of a plot, um, the pleasure of of a well-told story is is a uh, a remnant of that image uh, an echo of of our maker I, I would just pick up on that david i think that you're absolutely right and i think tolkien's definitely gives us some resources there to think about it i mean i would trace augustine's objection in the first place back to plato's objection in the republic to representative art and i mean it seems like Augustine, for whatever reason, has preferred that account of things to Aristotle's rebuttal of it in the Poetics, in which he holds up poetry and specifically fictional pieces of art as mimetic rather than as uh, derivative. And let me just explain those terms for a second. For Plato, the reason that we don't spend our energy in the ideal, the ideal city, Callipolis, the reason we don't spend our time on that is because it is at two removes from reality, and therefore we should concern ourselves with that which is real. Now, for Aristotle, the fictional text can actually help us to apprehend certain things about the real, not because it is itself a creation in the way that the material world is a creation, uh, but because it emphasizes certain things as a mirror emphasizes certain things about the human visage. Uh, so, I mean, you know, just for instance, a story might highlight certain relationships between fathers and sons 
that everyday life, because we are so involved in everyday life, would not reveal to us. We would miss it. We would look right over it unless there's a story there to point out that relationship to us. So I think that, you know, Christians can and should look to Aristotle as a better resource than Plato for this question about fiction and about humanism in general. What do you think, Michael? Oh, I think you're right. Um, and uh, I also, actually the first thing I read in co- my undergrad in college was the Madeline Lingle book, uh, Walking on Water. Do you guys know that book at all? Is that the one with the flood? It's the, well, no, it's a nonfiction book. It's, I think, the okay, okay. Reflection on Faith and Art. And she makes the I, point, I, I'm not familiar at all. She makes the point that all art is, all, all legitimate art is Christian because um, it's incarnational. And, and so there's something about fiction, writing fiction in particular, but reading fiction as well, that puts you in the mindset of God in a helpful way rather than in a blasphemous way. Dorothy Sayers' book, The Mind of the Maker, actually sounds uh, to be tracking along with that as well. Um, I, I would recommend it too. She uh, essentially argues for uh, an understanding of the relationship of the persons of the, in the Trinity by comparison with the relationship of the of the artist to to the conception of the art in their mind and the production of the art uh, in in the world and then the experience of that art in the audience. Um, so it's, it seems that this this notion of reflecting our maker in the, in, in the, the way that we make things and appreciate making things um, is, is something that has been reflected on by many people who we would value as as writers and thinkers. All right, so let's move on to our third and uh, final objection. I'm sure there's more, but these are the three we have. Um, I'm <laughs> calling this the Bardian objection. Um, Karl Barth is basically hyper-Calvin, um, and I'll probably argue that more next week when we talk about Calvinists. But he's, he's, I, I think he, he takes Calvin to some very logical conclusions. And he's concerned that an appeal to the truth of general revelation has the end effect of diminishing the... Um, special revelation given us to given to us in the Bible. Thus, if we say Plato is able to say things, particularly about God, that are correct, then what do we need special revelation for? I'm oversimplifying a bit. Um, what do you guys think of that? Well, once again, I, I th- you know, this might just be my aversion to Calvin, not really aversion, but my resistance to Calvin coming through. But I think that, you know, the, the categories of general and special revelation uh, really do muddy up the waters in a way that the distinction between reason and revelation don't. Uh, I understand, you know, where Bart's coming from. He's coming from sort of the height of technological utopianism. You've got Stalin on one side, you've got Hitler on the other, uh, both of them, you know, trying to mold the world in their images. And, you know, he's probably very, very concerned, and rightly so. Well, Hitler was embraced by the churches in Germany and so, in Russia. I mean, the Russian Orthodox church, you know, got behind Stalin. So, I mean, you know, I, I can see where his concern is. That said, I think that again, if we make that distinction that I talked about earlier between reason and revelation rather than general and special revelation, we can see where, you know, the particulars of the Christian confession, the Trinity, the resurrection, the Jewishness of Jesus, things like that, uh, are in fact, 
the special province of God's elect without having to say that, therefore, Christians, by virtue of being Christians, know everything about everything better than anyone else. I mean, David, I mean, you are more of a Calvinist than I am. I mean, what do you think about this division? I would, you know, in I think the good the good Calvinist manner, appeal to the special revelation to defend the general revelation. Um, you know, the psalmists, whichever psalmists it is, in, in various psalm, David or Asaph or the sons of Korah or whoever, uh, frequently refer to the natural world as uh, a a canvas upon which we can see the goodness, the wisdom. The, uh, the justice of God and so forth uh, pictured to us um, so that, you know, as in, uh, as in the art of humans, uh, what we produce is, is a self, uh, a self revelation to a certain extent. So to what God makes is a self revelation and obviously not a complete revelation, but, but nonetheless a, a true reflection of things that are real about him. Um, God himself at the end of Job also points to the creation and says, this is, these are, these are things that you can look at in the natural world. And, and so come to a conclusion about who I, your maker am and what your relationship with me should be like. And, uh, while on one hand, God does not point to the natural world and say, and you can see, therefore, logically, I am a triune being um, with a, a second person who will one day become incarnate and uh, die on the behalf of sinners. And if you uh, believe him, etc., 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 that 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 step is not made. But nonetheless, what the world speaks, it speaks truly even though it doesn't speak all. Um, I think too, I would, I would, uh, I would appeal to Calvin's, uh, Calvin's notion of, of the, the depravity of man's mind to say that the fault is not in, the fault is not in the creation. The fault is in, is in us, in, uh, in our abilities to perceive correctly and to deduce correctly from what we perceive. Um, the fault is not the fault is not the the creation uh the fault uh is is often ours oh sure uh, and i and I do grant that point to calvin you know the the medieval idea that the body is corrupt but the mind is somehow pristine I think that's bunk I think calvin's got that perfectly right I think it's good that we have a doctrine of total depravity so i just want i just want to hand that to you david i in that in that insofar as that's true. I am a Calvinist. Of course, yeah. I think the other four points flow logically from that one. But we'll talk about that <laughs> next week. Nathan, um, you're the moderator next week. You want to go ahead and explain our topic? Sure. Uh, in celebration of one John Calvin's 500th birthday, uh, two Calvinists and one person who has studied Calvin but does not call himself a Calvinist are going to have a discussion about the role that Calvin plays in liberal studies, the role that Calvin plays in modern church life, and generally have hopefully an interesting conversation about one John Calvin. That sounds good. Um, That's all for this week. If you want to email us, our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. 
Um, feel free to write in, tell us what you like, what you don't like, suggestions for future topics. If we get a good email, we'll read it out on the air. Uh, if you want to read my blog, it's ladderonwheels.blogspot.com. Nathan Gilmore's blog is nathangilmore.com slash hardly. Uh, David doesn't write on his blog anymore, so we're not giving out that address. At I'm any so rate, ashamed. Uh, what's that? You're so ashamed. Uh, <laughs> That, uh, that about sums it up for this week on the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, join us next Tuesday for our discussion of John Calvin. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. Mm-hmm.